You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This is the Land and Legacy Podcast with your hosts Adam Keith and Matt Dye. We've been talking a lot about habitat. Matt's got some changes he wants to do. We're going to change it up a little bit. We, again, Adam said we've been talking about habitat and management for the past couple of weeks, and, and it kind of hit me this morning. It's like, holy cow, it is June 1st. It's June 1st. We've got a couple more months until deer season really gets going, and um, we, we need to start talking about hunting. I'm getting excited. The other day I was just sitting there, and I found myself going back and looking at uh, some old old footage that we had done and, and, and hunts that we had been on, and I just like, man – it's getting close to hunting season, and uh, we need to we need to start talking about that again. And so today we're going to dive in and really talk about hunting small tracks, small tracks of land that may may get overlooked. Um, you know, it's maybe t- ten acres, thirty acres, and you know you're not interested because not that big property. But I want to step back and say, don't overlook it just based on acreage or. You know, it could be just behind someone's house, but today we're talking about small properties, hunting them, not overlooking them, and the the success that can be had on hunting small tracts of land. So, Adam, what have you got? Well, I just, I automatically think that the grass is always greener, and I I remember being a kid, and of course, my farm isn't a small, I mean, it's 282 acres, but it was, I mean, strictly devoted to cattle and it hunted uh, smaller than 280 acres yeah it's shaped i mean that ideally you want to square yeah um but my property is actually shaped a lot like texas so a lot of neighbors everywhere you go you're not far from a property and it it was always the grass was greener you're always thinking boy wouldn't it be nice if i had 2,000 acres i had 5,000 acres or i had Uh even 500 acres and i think a lot of us myself included, can get caught up in the fact of, boy, wouldn't it be nice? Woe is me. Right. But then I start thinking about some of the success I've had, and it's been in these small tracks. You know, you find that, for me, it's always about finding the right 40 or the right 100 acres. It's not about finding 2,000 acres and running around on it saying, oh, I don't have to worry about neighbors too right. much. yeah. And uh, you get into this, once you really fine-tune, you start diving in and breaking it down and hunting these smaller tracks or even you know we're going to go into some stories of public ground hunts that i had and those were small corridors now we're talking big chunks of land but diving down and going okay this is a corner of the road this is less than 100 acres i'm guessing not many people hunt this and those are some of the best areas Mm -hmm. i've ever found so yeah we'll 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 get into those in a little bit but that's kind of my introduction. I think we've got a, several different things we're going to talk about when it comes to small hunting properties or hunting small properties. And uh, so I think a first note is is yours. So yeah, I'll go ahead and get I think started. That, I think that, that translates right into kind of what I was going to talk on. And, you know, you've got some experience hunting public ground, but um, diving into those, those forgotten sections. And, you know, a lot of folks are hunting urban tracts of land and, and growing up in Virginia and then moving to Maryland, working out of Maryland for a land wildlife firm. Um, I had the, honestly, the privilege to be able to experience urban hunting. And I, I enjoyed it. It was a new type of hunting. I grew up hunting farmland, cropland, timberland, um, larger tracts of land. I was very privileged to do so. And I'm glad I had the experience to hunt those urban tracts and learn um, that technique and that style of hunting because it can be very productive. 
and is often overlooked just based on the fact of, okay, I have less than 10 acres to hunt, but for me, the pros of hunting that is, okay, there are deer here, and they're so confined that, honestly, it takes a lot of some of the guesswork out of where they're going to be traveling. There's specific areas that they are going to travel, and I'm going to talk on one one place in particular. It's actually a um, it was a it was a base that was um, active military trained on, and this is it was the whole base was 500 acres, but we couldn't hunt nearly all of it. There were small chunks of it, and what we had to do was figure out okay, I've got this road system and these housing developments in and around these areas that I had to hunt. So basically, what it, what it automatically did was okay, road here, house here. I've got deer that I know based on trail camera coming from behind this house and you know I can't hunt there safely but it's the it's hunting deer in transition in those urban areas that really makes it key or you've got this small pocket of woods that's a lot denser um, that's the best cover around and because deer are so adaptable they're living in there and they're making their living on sometimes some clover in people's yards or their gardens um, their flower beds and the buds and and it's incredible to see how adaptable they are, but realizing that, okay, I've got this small chunk, this is bedding, this is more of a preferred food source over here in this chunk, and then just getting in the middle because those of those you know human disturbances, whether it's a house or a fence or a dog that barks all the time, those deer are learning and adapting to those areas, moving around, and based on their travel patterns, you can kind of get in and hunt those areas in transition and as a bow hunter you put yourself on the x and you find success very easily and the other great thing about urban hunting is the access points you have so many different places to be able to access because of the roads because of um you know maybe it's a a park that you you you're parking that lot and and of course getting permission first from from the the neighbors the surrounding areas um and going in and you know I think there's a negative a negative connotation with with people in urban areas and you know getting permission but a lot of times some of these folks they're a little irritated with the amount of they keep eating the hostas. Yeah, the hostas and all the other plants and really <clears throat> the amount of damage and car accidents, you know, we can't forget about collisions. People are are irritated with the amount of deer that are there. Knock on a door. Ask them, introduce yourself and uh, you know, you might be surprised at the fact that they're going to let you slip across the, their backyard or, or whatever. But absolutely, my advice to those people, if you're asking permission in an urban area, is don't show up in torn up camouflage pants no. with blood on your no blood on your pants. And we've got to be respectful. Yeah, you know, there's a right and there's a wrong way to do it. And going in, being approachable, being polite, stating why you're there shaking a hand, looking people in the eye, and letting them know that you're going to do this the right way. You're not going to make a big mess. And and honestly, in another area that we, we basically we did deer removal in, in Maryland for, for this company, and um, part of our regime was to walk to the woods in street clothes. We would get changed in the woods just because of the fact that there was people who – didn't like the fact that we were there, and we had to respect that. We were there. Um, we had a job to do, but we wanted to be courteous of everyone that was there. And I think just taking those extra steps um, and precautions is certainly a wise thing to do. And it's a respectful thing to do as hunters. Again, we've got to be respectful to everyone who's you know able to see us, what we're doing, um, and respecting the game. So, you know, those are some added challenges to urban hunting, but... Then again, the pros, I think, far outweigh the cons. And I had a lot of success hunting those small tracks. And I say small tracks, we're talking acre, quarter acre um, portions of land that deer are using day in and day out. And it's just consistency. It's consistency in travel and capitalizing on they don't, that. A lot of times they don't have anywhere else to go. Correct. I was thinking, uh, I'll build on top of that in a little bit. Just recently, uh, I traveled up to St. Louis area. Um, for my high school baseball team was playing in state playoffs and I was up there and 
driving through, of course, there's signs everywhere that say deer crossing, deer crossing. Uh-huh. I mean, we're driving through houses. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're driving through subdivisions, and there's like little bitty woodlots, and and we all know, and, and Missouri residents pay attention much. They know that there's a lot of big deer in the urban areas of St. Louis, and while we drive by the sports complex, there's two portions. There's a little old creek that runs through the middle. It's got woods in it. And I kind of like, huh, wonder how many deer are hanging out in there mm-hmm. as we drive by and get to the game. National anthem starts playing. The music gets really loud. And it, it, it hadn't really wake been. Wake the neighbors loud. Yeah, you know, wake up the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And about that time, a couple of deer go running through the parking lot from that wood lot. Yeah. And I'm just like, huh, my, uh, I guess my gut feeling was correct. There were deer in there. They didn't like the, the turned up volume of the national anthem but they were they were in there and and i just think about when you're hunting those areas that a lot of times that that's kind of the benefit is that you pretty much know where the deer are going to be a lot of times they're predictable very predictable just based on the fact that they don't have anywhere else to go and unfortunately that is that causes those those human um interactions those those things that have um that brings frustration to people sometimes with you know car accidents and, and eating the hostas and um, destroying their their landscape but uh, you know and again it's just a different type of management that needs to be done on those small tracts of land and um, just keeping deer numbers in, in check and balance with the landscape um, again that's that's our duty as hunters that's what we're tagged to do and and uh, in many places hunting in urban areas there's there's benefits from the state as well. You get additional tags, additional antlerless tags, or in some areas and in, in portions of Virginia, there is a um, program that was called earn a buck. You had to tag two does prior to tagging all your bucks and you earned a buck by tagging them in these specific areas. So you earned a buck by reducing the amount of antlerless deer in an area and for most hunters, that was very beneficial or encouraging. It got them out. Um, extended seasons, you know, you might be the first ones in the woods to tag antlerless deer. Um, and and I, there's just a lot of benefits to it. Um, but ultimately, it's a matter of, of getting in and hunting them effectively. And we're going to dive deeper into those um, here in a little bit. But, Adam, let's talk a little bit about... Yeah hunting larger tracks and some of the differences so, uh, over time you know, that people are seeing. I think every hunter out there would, they dream of a large track of land, owning a big ranch and hunting mm-hmm. it. But, you know, you've talked a little bit about the hunting urban areas, but even on large tracks, sometimes given the area, you're still hunting small tracks. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's where I'll build on top of the, you kind of know where the deer are. You think about areas of Iowa and Illinois where, We've got miles and miles of crops, but mm-hmm. then you have a little bitty woodlot. And that little bitty woodlot may not be owned by the farmer. A lot of times you see these little woodlots are owned by somebody else because a farmer has no use for it's, a woodlot. He sold it off, possibly. Yeah, and it may be a 20-acre woodlot. And those, even though it's a small tract of land, that's that's still where the deer are. So that would honestly be more beneficial to have permission to hunt that 20-acre woodlot than it would the thousands of acres of crop ground around it. And I think when you get into that, of course, we'll talk about the hunting strategy of the small lots. We're just trying to build up these areas that you can envision being small tracks. And so that's just one, another example of small tracks is these little woodlots in ag country. Just like yesterday we were on a property. It was the whole farm was 800 acres, but the folks that wanted us to come and consult, they had 25 acres that they wanted us to do the consulting on. And, and what that was at 25 acres was pretty much all timber, but the cattle could not get into that timber. It was fenced off and had been fenced off for years. And there's actually a residence in the pretty much middle of that 25 acres. But growing up, the clients had experienced hunting successfully there for years even though they had all the, the additional 800 acres in rural Missouri, it that factor of, of having just that, that timber where the cattle couldn't go on a small property it had the feeling of you know maybe an urban hunting because of that house, and you're still in rural Missouri. Well, yeah, when especially when they tell us the story of sitting in a tree stand and deer <laughs> coming to the food plot, and you hear, travel, travel, get in here. And it's, and it's the white client's grandma. Off. 
Yeah, and the deer <laughs> ran out, and you turn around and see the grandma yelling at yelling at her dog. Right. Um, that definitely a uh, a urban feel to me. Urban deer hunt. Most I remember definitely. when I was in college, I hunted and on an urban hunt in mm-hmm. in actually Branson, Missouri, and I'm sitting there, and and I'd never been to this property. I went with a friend of mine. And uh, he's like, yeah, just go down this holler, and you'll see the stand down there. So I climb down there, and I'm kind of sitting there, and I and I hear something, and I'm like, that sounds like a school bus. And I turn around, and I look back behind me, and I'm I mean, it was probably 100 yards here. And there was a school bus dropping off a busload of kids, and I'm, like, looking through my binoculars. I'm like, oh, my goodness, the property line's just right there. And, like, mm-hmm. and I was, uh, to me, growing up in the Ozarks, that was as close to urban – northeast style of hunting that i ever got but right. that was uh that was kind of eye-opening for me it was kind of like oh okay i'm gonna have to watch what i'm doing around here so yeah anyway so you know you're talking about small tracks we talk about urban even the even the crop ground hunting woodlots um and you know i i often think about and i've said this a lot but we all dream of owning a big ranch, but sometimes it's never about owning that big ranch. It's it's about owning the right 40. Oh, exactly. And, you know, you and I can agree that a lot of times during the fall when we're hunting a specific buck and during the summer we've had him on five cameras and then October, November hit, and it's like we get him on one camera. And he has Consistently. This, yes, yes. It's like, okay, for some reason he likes that ridge mm-hmm. better than, than everywhere else in his in his home range for some reason during that time of the year. Right. And even then you dial it down and you're like, Oh, that's a 40 acre chunk there. And, and so you think about, you only have 40 acres to hunt. And for some reason you don't have many bucks. So our farm used to be this way, a portion of our farm where we wouldn't have any bucks through the entire summer. It was always does on the camera. We would get so frustrated. We're like, where are all the bucks? But as soon as hunting pressure started to get on during season, October, boom, bucks showed up and that's where they stayed and it and 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 that was about owning that right 40 acres exactly and i i think that you you know when you really consider bow hunting you have to be on the x to be successful it's not like a gun where you can reach out 200 yards and and pick one off you know you're on the power line oh he walks by and you know don't get me wrong done that and we'll continue to do that that's a style of hunting but when it comes to bow hunting archery successful you need to be on that right trail that trail has to be within you know 40 50 yards of you to be able to capitalize and when you start getting down to the nitty-gritty you have to know and be picking the specific tree in 40 acres or so to be able to capitalize on that and and accessing that that specific tree has to be you know so particular that you're not disturbing it and and ruining your chances um so bone hunting has its challenges and I, I think you're exactly right when you when you really start studying and getting into you know a lot of people refer to as a core area of a buck you know you have to be on that x and you know when you think about it you've got 2,000 acres but this buck is you know he's here i know he's here he's close he's going to be using this area I, my trail cameras are telling me that but i need to be here what you can actually do mentally it's break that large track down into a small track and focus on it i think a lot of times myself included i remember in college going to hunt a that was a big thrill of mine was going to hunt a new piece i love hunting new land and seeing Mm -hmm. new places and it was always a thrill to go to a big chunk of conservation area national forest wherever that was public ground somewhere and you almost got dizzy looking at a map going wow, this is a lot of land. I don't even know where to begin. Uh huh. And yeah. that I think is a problem. I, I'm, yes, I get it. Don't, you don't have to send emails and say, oh, that's a big problem and get to hunt a big chunk of land. But that is sometimes a problem, myself included, when you get a large chunk of land to hunt. You almost don't know where to begin. Small tracts of land, mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of times you know exactly where to you begin. You have a few options and yeah. you go and study it and you're like, okay, well, this <clears throat> is my best option. But you find success doing that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, honestly, we could talk a whole nother time about, I think it's another great podcast topic is, okay, you've got a large track land, you've got a piece of public ground, and let's just go ahead, start to finish, let's digest how we're going to go in and, and, and start hunting this. Where do we begin? Where do we park? What, what place do you think is going to be the least accessible by people? Or do we, or do we even want to say, what's not necessarily least accessible, what's accessible, but 
what are the people missing out on? What are they walking past? Are they parking here and going in four miles and forgetting about the the nice you know overgrown piece of a lot of times cutover? that is the case. Right. Um, especially, I think of one place in particular uh, in central Missouri, big chunk and a big chunk of conservation area, mm-hmm. and. We used to take our bikes and bike in four and a half miles. Right. And I mean, you put in work. You put oh, in effort. It was brutal. And I'll tell you, you leave the lot. You leave the lot on the bike in the dark. It's 4 a.m. in the morning. Headlamp Daylight's an just, hour away or an hour and a half away. Headlamp's on, and you're zipping. So as soon as you leave the lot, it's all downhill, four and a half miles downhill. Mm-hmm. So and now the first initial... Half a mile is a steep downhill. You almost have to ride the brake or you're going to lose control and break your neck. And the other, the rest of it is just a slow grade downhill. But, but hunting is totally worth it, risking breaking your neck. Yeah, totally. In fact, I remember a story. There was a guy that killed a really good buck, and he went back in there to take his buddy. Right. In this same four and, a, or four and a half miles in, there was a couple big bottom fields uh-huh. right next to the river. And the guy wrecked his bike and broke his collarbone. Oh, man. Uh, so... But we would always bike in, and we thought, okay, four and a half miles. Nobody else is biking in four and a half miles. Yeah. What we realized was everybody was doing that. Uh-huh. We got back in there, and, of course, public ground. It looked like a parking lot. For yeah, the there was bikes everywhere. It was like a college campus. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> so we are like, oh, I think, you know, we do see that was where the most ag on that whole place mm-hmm. was, and that's why there was deer there throughout the summer. But quickly into hunting season, that's where everybody was going. So that's where the pressure was concentrated at. So when he started backing up, we're, and over time, we're like, <laughs> we didn't even take the bikes in there. We were going uh-huh. to different areas where we knew people probably were overlooking. Yeah. And uh, I think of another story where um, there was another conservation area we used to hunt, and we would hunt. There was this little little triangle next to the to the interior, I guess the the roads the access roads or the maintenance roads mm-hmm. and we would hunt those that little triangle and it, it wasn't it was probably about 50 acres and the fact was that it was surrounded by roads and just not many people hunted it on a map that. that probably didn't look appealing based not at on all. the fact that it was its proximity to parking areas and other roads but in reality <clears throat> everyone thought that <clears throat> it actually everyone had a walking trail through it uh-huh. and it didn't have food plots it didn't have crop fields and so it was like, well, there's no attraction. There's mm-hmm. no there's no food at all. There's actually people that could walk through it on the trail. Yeah. There's no reason to, there's no reason to hunt that. But the fact that people walked through there and they didn't hunt it. Yes. It made it secure for the deer and, and that was the biggest thing. That is key right there. You, you you hit the nail on the head with secure. You know, there's people in there, but they're not bumping the deer. The deer are used to seeing them walking by, and that's just a normal daily or, you know, every couple of times a week that that's happening, and they're not alarming the deer. They're not spooking them, and the deer are just comfortable. They're used to it. They're, they're very used to it, and another part of that was they were used to smelling people. Exactly. So you could walk in there, and even if the deer smelled you, they probably didn't associate you with danger. Mm-hmm. And so... It was night and day difference between that little triangle and the rest of the property. And you almost felt stupid sitting in there because you knew that there was a chance somebody may walk by. Right. But you were going to see deer. And but so it was kind of like, I hope, I hope somebody that's a serious deer hunter doesn't drive by and see me sitting in a tree stand <laughs> right now because they are going to think I'm foolish. But right. little did they know we had a game plan. A game plan. And that, that right there is just the, the case in point we're trying to make is, you know, big track of land but break it up find those areas and treat them like a small hunting property like a small track of land and you're going to find the success especially during bow season because what and i want you to talk a little bit about your entry and exit points on that that specific little triangle based on all those roads and that walking trail how are you accessing it, and, and how so can basically, you if the do wind was out of the north, property. you came in from the south part. If the wind yeah. was out of the west, you came from the east part. It was ideal because you had, you had, whatever the wind was, you could get into that piece. Right, and that's why when we're laying out a property, we're talking about laying out a property. Um, we talk about a interior road system or some sort of road system. Ideally, 
if if this is a landlocked piece, you do some sort of fire line because fire is a big part of the management we do. Mm-hmm. You have a fire line all around the exterior of the property. Yeah. And you instead of just being a fire line, you turn that into a road system. So no matter what, you can walk around and or and drive around if you and need get to. to the get to the part of the property you need to hunt with the preferred wind. And I think that's a big problem. I used to oh I I hate thinking about back back in the day learning how to bow hunt and learning how oh, to hunt man. all the stupid stuff we used to do and how one part of the farm it's actually the home base that we talk about prairie hollow property mm-hmm. and there's one road that comes through the uh northeast portion of the farm and it drops to the southwest and we would walk that all the way in and then we turn around and take one ridge and walk it straight north and so we pretty much there's there's not really an ideal wind for walking a mile or a half three quarters of a mile southwest and then turn You're around and walk up something yeah. along the way and so it's just like well i just hope they're up there on the west half today and they're not going to smell us mm-hmm. as we walk in but obviously they we jump deer all the time walking in there so it's if you're hunting urban it's all about access a lot of times when it, you're hunting these it's small all, all and, about and, access. and even not just small but That's when hunting in general to, yeah. yeah and to it's paying attention to your really. yeah paying attention to your access and exit and where your wind's going and you know we've talked about urban urban hunting we talked about crop field hunting and the small wood lots and now we've talked about just public ground hunting that's finding these little sections even though it may be a big big part of the big chunk of public ground it's still finding those little areas where there's security mm-hmm. and when there's security deer are going to be on their feet during daylight so and that's obviously when the hunting su- success just increases is when they're comfortable when they're moving during daylight hours and yeah it, to me you know i think anybody who's ever hunted public ground has scratched their head and been extremely frustrated with somebody because i can uh, way uh, a lot of times, probably over twenty to thirty times, mm-hmm. or more. Try to forget it, but be set up on a food plot, and just at dark, deer raises their head or runs out, or there's no Joe deer, Bob. and you're like, "What in the world? Why aren't there deer?" And you see some guy walking along, and he's got an arrow knocked, <laughs> and he's like, "He's Spot still and hunting, yeah." And and so. <laughs> And I hate to say it, but it's almost like you find those, let's just say stupid areas, those areas where it's just like, okay, this is totally overlooked. Mm -hmm. If you can find those areas, a lot of times that's where you're going to have higher success because the guy that's out still hunting in the food plots, when I'm hunting public ground, I almost never hunt food plots. Right. Um, Unless it's late season, it's really cold, and I know there's not that many people hunting, but during prime time, I don't even waste my time because I know it's everybody an, else is a, usually coming there. It's an automatic thought that, okay, you're getting, getting there at dark or, or after dark, middle of the night. They're at that point. So I need to backtrack and go way back into the timber and find where they're bedding and set up much closer to bedding than that food source. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of times, you know, in several of the public ground pieces that I hunted, there was not really a specific bedding area. Yeah. Uh, because all the timber was the same. So then it comes into you're trying to find where nobody else goes. Mm-hmm. And that was the key. Um, there's a couple places that we hunted where there was clear cuts. Uh-huh. And I nobody wanted to go into those clear cuts. If they were thick and nasty, automatically that was great because you knew, okay, that's where the deer the are. deer will be there. And so, and even, you know, this goes into, we talk about it a lot, cedar thickets. And people talk about deer loving cedar thickets, and we were like, we have to explain. It's not really that beneficial. There's way better types of bedding. But on public ground and even places in Iowa, as we talked before, the cedar thickets is where the deer bed because nobody walks through it. Nobody wants to walk in it, and and therefore it becomes a security blanket over top of these cedar thickets that deer just are going to feel comfortable in there whether they want to be in there or not that's their that's they basically don't have another option because they live and die by fear every Mm -hmm. day they're faced with making decisions based on survival and of course they're going to pick the area that's the safest that's the most secure not necessarily that has the best habitat Um, and that's why we need to be mindful of how we're hunting these properties and how we're, you know, approaching the access, entry and exits to um, small tracts of land because 
if you're if you're hunting these areas and you're and you're not interfering with the security of the deer in that area, you're not alerting them, then they're going to continue on their their daily routines and your hunting is going to be much more successful from opening day to the last day of season when you're not interfering with that and they can continue to um, get on their feet during daylight hours. And sometimes that means, especially on a small tract of land, that you're not hunting um, with the wrong winds. I mean, it sounds simple, but you know, it's let's just say it's November and you've got a small tract of land. It's a it's a pinch point, and you want to be there because you know the buck's going to be there. Come but, on now, don't take November away from them. Say October. <laughs> let's go October. There's a cold front coming in, and you've got a. Uh, a stand it's one stand you don't have enough room for another stand you just can't it's not feasible you can't get in there and you decide to hunt it you're going to do more damage you decide to hunt it with a bad wind so you set up the one stand as a north wind and you get a south wind you're like it's cold front i gotta go i gotta go you can't go if you want to continue to have success on that right property the success that you're desiring whether that's you know mature bucks and whatever and really then that brings into an, an another topic really is you know what are your goals for hunting um, the small tracts of land, and and I, based on success and, and seeing, and you see it all the time through social media, um, or I'm going to throw it back to my days at um, Quantico Marine Corps Base. There was a and it, basically the base was split into two different areas: 100,000 acres of huntable ground, 75,000 or so was um, basically just designated areas for people for for the military to train there was like no civilization <laughs> there's just roads and access and ranges and gun ranges and woodland shells so, yeah spent shells gun smell of gunpowder america waking up in the morning but you you just there's there's no civilization there's no um human disturbance out there minus just the hunting pressure but then the other um, land was what we would call main side and that's where all the offices were that's where all the, the um you know the the barracks were and basically the if you if you were to take the 75 the 100,000 acres um the majority of the bigger deer were coming from main side and that to me is just a, a matter of okay these deer are finding those areas that they feel secure but what i'm trying to say is you can still have mature deer in these small areas you can still get deer to older age classes and have mature bucks to hunt in small tracts of land. You just basically they're going to find a way to survive if hunters aren't taking them. And if you're letting those deer walk at younger ages, if that's your goal, then even on small tracts of land, getting deer to older age classes is very possible. And seen it throughout the entire country. Um, you know, you look at some cities of St. Louis area. You you mentioned earlier that big deer are killed out of there all the time year after year and you look out all across the the country and you know you see the same thing i i was again in in maryland and maryland's a kind of a, a little bit of a sleeper state it's not that big of a state obviously but the the quality of deer that are coming out of there is pretty impressive especially from urban and suburban areas um so don't overlook those areas and don't think that you're limited by um you know the access to having mature bucks in an area because it's a small track of land deer will find a way they're very adaptable to survive if you let them get to that age and uh to me that's just an encouraging positive note for for people who haven't hunted urban and think they're limited by okay well that's a two and a half year old he's not he's probably not gonna get any bigger based on the small track of land it's possible and it happens every single year yeah and and you know you kind of set the tone for no property is too small to manage. There's always something you can do to improve it. Now, the great thing about that is is whenever you're managing a small property, let's say it's an urban area or wherever it's at, a lot of times your neighbor's not going to be managing because they feel that it's a waste of time to manage a small property. Mm-hmm. Now, ideally, the whole county of small properties managing is great. It's great for hunting shows that, but I, but let's just face it, not everybody's going to be doing that. And so, let's talk about ways we can manage on small properties. First off, let's understand our goals and objectives. Yes. And you know, you mentioned you can grow big deer 
on these small properties. Obviously, there's tons of there's a lot of great there's deer hunting in Maryland. Every single year that happen, and it's not going to happen as much as these huge tracks. Yeah, but think, it still need, happens. The goals need to be realistic and understand that that deer isn't going to spend his whole life on that 25 acres or 10 acres. That's not going to happen. But if you're letting the deer walk, they can have a much, much better chance of getting to those older age classes and habitat management that you do is going to impact um, positively on those deer. So Adam, what are some of the things, the management that you can do, management techniques that you can do on a smaller property that's going to make a, a difference? Well, first off for me, when you're hunting small properties, it's all about trying to make that we know that there's a good chance on these small properties, let's say it's urban areas, that there's a lot of disturbance. So how can we make that much that property better, your hunting property better than this ranny? You're gonna limit the amount of disturbance. So you're not gonna be in there busting a the brush, cutting shooting lanes week before season. You're not gonna be letting the dogs run through it. Yeah. You're just limiting the amount of pressure that's going on to that property. That's that's one of the biggest ways to improve it. Now Think of other ways is you want to have some, you want to improve the security. We've done that by limiting the amount of pressure. Now we want to improve the amount of cover. So Mm -hmm. whether that's, let's just say it's a little woodlot and it's pretty open. You know, I think of urban areas, a lot of times you see almost browse lines. The park setting. It's very much park setting. Big trees, wide open underneath. So let's let's drop some trees. Mm -hmm. Let's open up that canopy. Let's let some under early secession understory growth grow up and fill that fill that gap so now that we've done that now we have cover and security which is huge and food you know in a book i was reading just the other day food feeds the deer food plots feed the deer cover holds deer and so i just think that if you can increase the amount of security and the cover you're you're way ahead of the surrounding area Mm -hmm. other ways that we can improve it let's say for the hunting hunting side of it and, and just trying to increase the amount of time deer spend on your property. If you have a place to put it, put a food plot in. Yeah, sure. Understand that that food plot's not going to feed the deer throughout the year, but during hunting season, it's a high-quality attraction that of a preferred resource that deer like, so they're going to probably spend more time coming to your property. Especially if you have, the again, the other added features like we talked about, security. And if cover. you have security and cover, now you're increasing the amount of daylight activity and you have the food, so you're increasing the amount of daylight activity Ooh. of deer feeding on your property. Yeah. Think of other ways that you can increase your property. If 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 the landowner gives you permission or say it's your own property, plant some fruit trees. That's another thing sure. you can do. It's not even on our notes. Just brought that out of the hat. Wow, I'm impressed, Adam. So you planted fruit trees. Maybe it's along the edge of your food plot. Um, now you have two different types of food sources. Yeah. Another thing you can do, and I don't know how well, and of course this is all where legal as we get into this. Um, I know in some states in the urban areas you are allowed to bait. Feels weird telling, telling people that they can do that to increase it because you're not allowed to bait here in Missouri during hunting season. A lot of the states have hunted, but if it's legal and your neighbors are doing it, you better do it. Yeah, I, and, and I think that's a great point, you know. If if there are if deer, a lot of times there's a lot of research that goes into it, but and these are these are research from college and universities that a lot of times, and I'm going to say this, and a lot of people are like, well, I've killed deer over over bait, and and sure it happens every single year, but the majority of deer are not hitting or major, especially mature mature bucks. deer, yeah, are not hitting those bait sites uh, during daylight hours. You know, they, if you if you hunt them right. Or you don't hunt them until it it is right, you know, and you have the security on your property, and deer are already feeling safe. That's when a a successful hunt over bait is more likely to occur. Yes, and you know, we, when I say that, it's it's all about com- basically trying to increase the amount of attractiveness of your property. So I wouldn't say you put it out there to hunt on it or put it in the middle of your food plot, but have it out there so it is an attraction to keep deer around your place mm-hmm. because if you don't have it and neighbors do just like adam said earlier deer will hit them deer yeah. will find those and take a an easy meal um when they can do it that's just a matter of fact we can't change that another thing we can do is and this is a, a great time of the year to have them out but mineral stations so mm-hmm. have a mineral out 
they're still going to hit it throughout the year. They're not going to hit it as hard during November as they are right now um, most in most places, but at least having them out there so if a deer needs that during the hunting season, they know where to go find it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then other things you can do to increase the amount of, I guess, attractiveness or just bringing deer into your area more is mock scrapes. Oh, that's a big one right there. That's a huge one. And, and maybe you're not having to build the mock scrape, but you're at least trying to make a – Almost community scrape. I say that because that's a very loose term. Yeah. Um, yeah. But having some sort of scrape that's attractive to where deer get conditioned to going to that to check and see who's in the neighborhood. Yes. And you can put all those in a. If you only have five acres and you only have the one food plot with fruit trees, and you can put all that in one area to where that is like, if you look at a map, it's a supermarket. That's what it is. Th- that's where they go. That or X shopping mall. Yes, you've got you've got you've got Auntie Anne's over here with with really good food, and you got shopping over here, and you got all these different features and and things all in one condensed area, and that's just going to naturally put deer in a dense area in a small pocket, and you're going to have a lot more deer sighting. I mean. It, the the logic behind it is very simple and but think of it like this in a lot of urban areas there's a high there's a very high, high deer density deer typically. density a lot of does you see a lot of does and during that time of the year you may sit there going but all i'm seeing are does but yeah, know that those wait. does are going to become receptive and then that's when you'll start seeing the bucks move into your property and if you have them coming into your property or staying on your property know that at some point bucks are going to start cruising through Oh, you, they, they will become, they, they're going to come out of the woodwork, honestly. And I've, I've seen that. I say that because I've, I've seen it and seen, you know, does on camera from September all the way to October. And then as soon as November hits, something just shows up. You're like, hello. And, and they've, they might've been using a different part of, let's say a neighborhood. And then, um, as soon as they, you know, those does start coming in heat and they're, they're, they're running those, those pinch points. And that, that's the, that's again, the beauty we talked about earlier, of urban hunting or hunting small tracks those pinch points they really funnel deer down they're used to running those pinch points um and another thing that we, that we can mention on on managing those small tracks is is if you don't have a great pinch point or if you need to steer deer a little bit drop a tree drop drop a tree and say okay this trail kind of veers way down there it veers off my neighbor's property and drop a tree make them turn and come back on your property. Make it so you have the advantage again. And just steering deer by, you know, blocking a, a trail that they're naturally taking um, can allow you to do so. And and don't be afraid to drop a tree. Do it safely. But um, know that you can do that and have that advantage of creating a bottleneck, even if it's not there. Um, and that, that's a huge benefit on smaller tracts of land. Yes. And let's use the example of yesterday's. So 25 acres, and 90% of this property was timber, and not high-quality timber, marketable timber. We're talking 30-year-old timber that got whatever, bush hogged, or it was an old pasture. They kept bush hogging, and now we have a bunch of stump sprouts and a lot of double and triple trees mm-hmm. um, that are stacked in, I mean, tight. Um, shoulder to shoulder. You're, you're turning your shoulders just to walk dia- through it. Diameter breast height, DBH of no. these trees is six to eight inches maybe. on average, maybe. And uh, most of the trees, so most of the trees were oak. But then when mm-hmm. you start looking and you're like, okay, well, it's oak. They're going to drop acorns, but not in the condition they were in. Too much competition. Now, some of the trees would probably drop acorns, but not not reach your full potential and if a lot of people want their no and not in your lifetime not in your kids lifetime they're just they they need some change there and since it is 25 acres that is one of the benefits of smaller properties is you can manage every every square inch of that place and for that guy to improve his hunting on the 25 acres we recommended doing something with the timber and as we talked with matt ross last week this is where it gets really interesting. We can lay out some clear cuts, like one to two acre clear cuts, and have even age regeneration or even age uh, stand improvement. And so now those, for us, what we're going to do is cut these trees or recommend for this guy to cut trees in these three one acre chunks. He's going to treat the stumps so it's early secession that comes back. There's already the debris of every, it's it's kind of nasty when the trees fall. Um 
but it's great betting at first. Yep. At first, and those break down quick, but it's great betting. We've located those in areas for to know. Okay, they're most likely betting there. The rest of the timber is all. We've done some timber stand improvement. We've we've hacked and squirted and killed a lot of the double and triple trees. Now we're leaving prime trees that are single trunk that have great potential. Now that we've removed the competition out in the surrounding area, now they have plenty of sunlight, plenty of nutrients, and they will be able to flourish. But we've also opened up the canopy by killing out those other trees that aren't ever going to have, I guess, any value. Now we're getting all kinds of early secession in the timber, providing food and cover. And so his 25 acres that was once used and abused is now the island in the rough in the in the neighborhood diamond in the rough yes and so please don't do that again and anyway so i just had that musical note i just had to get out no it was musical that was absolutely (laughs) and anyway so we're talking you know that's that's all ways that you can manage small properties and let's just say 10 10 acres and it's all it's all timber and one way to improve it manage it is do some Timber stand improvement, open up that canopy to where you have trees that are reaching their full potential, but there's also great cover underneath. Let's say it's 10 acres and it's a field. Don't think that you have to mow that entire 10 acres if you're oh. trying to. That that hurts me. Let it go. To see a, a person that's got a, a house and then 10, 20 acres and they mow a, a big section of it and then mm-hmm. they get the bush hog out and they clear it out. You can do some old field management plant some plum thickets, have some of this just great, almost prairie-like setting. Yeah. It's, it's really funny because my wife is like, oh, my gosh, I want a big yard with with room for our kids to be able to run around. And I'm like, I kind of want to limit the amount I'd have to mow, and I'll just turn that into some early successful stuff. I'll just – if it's already there and we buy a place, I'm just going to spray it and then let it go. I'll, I'll mow like a little path around it that we can walk, but I, I want that to be – 10 acres of old field management and 10 less acres at the mow. I mean, I, I want kids running the yard, but I don't want to mow, you know, let me know how that works. Whenever all the rats and mice and rabbits are running around. (laughs) Don't say that. that. She's probably going to listen to this. Anyway. Um, yeah, that's just another way that you can improve the hunting. If you have an open, open 10 acres or an open, and let's just say an open small track is, don't give up on the fact that there's no trees. Know that you can manage and actually have a very high quality um, piece of property, even if it is open. So that's all different ways to manage small tracks. Let's talk a little bit about the hunting hunting small tracks of land, Matt. Yeah, I, I think sometimes if, if you don't have the ability to do management, if, if you've got access to a property and it's one of these small properties we're talking about and, you know, you just... The, the landowner's tentative to letting you, whether bring a chainsaw in there, use herbicide, which happens. And, and you know, you, you take what you can get and um, understand that, you know, that doesn't mean, you know, it's a, it's a junk piece of property. Because likely on small tracts of land, if there's deer using them, they kind of, to me, fall into one of three categories. And that could be that that small property has a really good food source or it's a really good corridor. Or lastly, it's really good bedding, and depending upon which one of those. And when you three, say corridor, you mean travel corridor. I mean travel corridor. It's, there's a there's a just place, to clear that up. Yeah, there's a place um, or multiple places on on that track that funnels deer through it, and you know on either side of that small track, you might have the the area that is considered bedding or that is considered food. So deer are forced because of the. whether it might be a road or houses, are forced to walk through that small tract of land to get to those. So it's a corridor that you're going to use. So basically a small tract of land has pretty much falls into one of those categories. And based on those categories, you're going to hunt them differently. So Adam, if you've got a small tract and, you know, it's 10 acres and, and let's say six of those acres, it is just choked out really thick and just brambles you've got old field basically that was just abandoned and and it's just green briar blackberry grapevine um, some cedar trees coming up in there but 
you know, the landlord's like, I don't really want you taking equipment in there. So you're not going to change it. You just realize, okay, this is the condition of the land. It's bed and area. I know that's bed and area. What's your approach to hunting that? Staying out of that bedding area, for sure. You said that was six acres of the 10 acres. I'm staying out of that. Now I'm trying to find access to get around that bedding area without my wind ever going across the bedding area, without ever blowing it out, and I'm going to hunt deer going to and from that bedding area. Okay. Now I need to figure out how to get deer to come to and from that area in front of my stand. Right. And that's where you start. You're looking at ways to... You said that, let's just say this is a very cautious landowner, and he's like, I don't really want equipment. I don't want chainsaws. He pretty much lets you hunt it as is, but with a few tweaks. A lot of times they're not going to say anything about a mineral. Uh huh. And they're not going to say much about a mock scrape. Right. And those are two things that you can put out. You can put the mineral out and have that in. That is in that same spot year after year. You get deer conditioned to go in there during the summer and you get in condition to just cutting through there through the remainder of the year. Yeah. Now you put the mock scrape out and you've cleared out the, the leaves underneath the sticks. And a lot of times it's just the fresh dirt smells curiosity. Yeah. It tweaks it the curiosity the enough, <laughs> but just making it a mock scrape and, uh, you put that out there close to your stand. Now you've got great access with a couple of things out front that, intrigue the deer or cause the deer to veer and go in front of your stand. Yeah. And that is one of the biggest key. If, if it's a bedding area, small track, biggest key is going to let it continue to be a small bedding area. I think so. It basically don't change it. Don't, don't do anything. Don't hunt it in a manner that's going to inhibit deer or stop deer from coming there. You want that, that specific property to maintain its security and you can hunt it effectively by again, I think placing those minerals where legal and using mock scrapes to to put deer in front of your stand within bow range, um, and you can do that and and not interfere or impede with the fact that this is a bedding area. As soon as those deer get off get up <clears throat> on their feet, excuse me, and and move out of that bedding area, you want to be there to intercept them. You know, I think of I saw this post on Facebook um, the other day. It was a now, let's just say this is a small track of land, but it was a beautiful, beautiful old field. Ooh, yeah. It had lots of goldenrod, like lots that of... backyard I was just talking about. And it was just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And the guy went out and completely disked it up. No! Yeah. And so I'm thinking, you know, if it's a small track of land and it has thick, nasty, and you're like, oh, that's ugly. But you look around the neighborhood and there's not really any other... Ugly? Ugly, thick, nasty stuff. Don't, <laughs> don't you dare change it. Well, it, the thing is, when you say disc it, it, it you can disc old field. Old field. This guy turned them. it completely over. Correct. It was just straight dirt. And disking, we've we've said before, you know, disking an old field at the right time of year is going to promote certain. Uh, and when you and say stuff. disking, he's not talking about turning up the soil completely. We're talking about a Correct. light, very light disking, exposing to you, a little bit of uh, that soil. Yes, uh, but. This gentleman was doing, unfortunately, at the wrong time of year, completely destroying that habitat, and therefore... He was trying to turn it into a food plot, I believe. Right. But, yes, and so that's one of the things. Know, know the, I guess, know the benefit of the property. If the benefit of the property is it's a travel corridor, increase the, I guess, the increase the amount of corridor and improve the corridor, find out how to hunt that travel corridor, mm-hmm. and use that to your advantage. If it's a bedding area then increase that bedding area to your advantage to where there's more deer bedding in there and you don't ever go in there and disturb it if it's an area that is now the food source then increase the food source where you have a preferred food food source throughout the year um but let's just say it's it's all of the above you have all of it you just improve as we've talked in podcast after podcast after podcast improve what you have Mm -hmm. and that is going to be one of the biggest things is no in in hunting small tracks as well as is just knowing how to access it and how to keep deer on that property during the during the hunting season. Um, and what else you got to add? Matt? I, I think I, I was, I'm going to talk briefly on you know okay now we've got that property that is that is just an area of transition and again this landowner he says I I'm sorry I don't want you to change it I don't want you to take equipment in there I don't want you to cut trees so. 
if that was the case, and I'm presenting, I know you're going to be, you have to be walking through here to access the food supply on the other um, property. To me, how I'm going to approach that in my head is, all right, I need multiple wins. I need multiple stands that I can access this travel corridor and hunt because I don't want this property because it's dynamite. I don't want it to be just a north wind spot. I'm going to really study a map. I'm going to really understand, okay, what it is that or where it is I can get to on um, this trail, this travel corridor and hunt it on a west wind. And a lot of times if you have those pinch points, that means there's there's things like a big ravine or something that you might be able to walk up or you might have a house or a backyard that you might be able to access, you know, contact that landowner, get access from a completely different direction and, and get in and be able to hunt that travel corridor on a different wind. And I think that is the best approach is, is just realizing, okay, this property, you're going to be using it day in and day out and I need to find a way to hunt it, maximize my time hunting and... That involves getting multiple stands up for multiple different winds and accessing from the right points, the right places at the right times, and not interfering with that travel corridor. Let the deer do what they do. They're there for a reason. Don't impede that, but just hunt it in a way that, that again, doesn't disturb it and will be effective for multiple different winds. Anything I agree 100. percent I, you know, I think of, I'm just, I'm just going back thinking of that. If the spot is already good, if it's already a good bedding area, don't try and flip it 180 and say, okay, this good bedding area is now going to be a good food plot, um, or a it, mediocre food plot. If it, if it does a good job of, of, of you know, bedding habitat, oh, I just want that's less work for you to have to do. Don't make more work for yourself. Because you want to hunt over a food plot. If that's a bedding area, treat it as a bedding area and mm-hmm. know that, okay, I – because there's some people who don't know where it's your bed. And in timber country, sometimes there's not enough um, fragmentation or, or, or varying um, – There's not enough edge. Su- yeah, succession for there to be designated bedding areas. And you now have a luxury of having a distinct, definitive bedding area that deer are in every single day. Please don't disturb. Hunt it, yeah, but learn how to hunt it. I've seen appropriate. I've seen great areas, great bedding areas, great edges mm-hmm. be destroyed by turning it into a food plot. Yeah, and that is just one of those things that you know what you have, or or at least if the deer, so let's say if the deer calling a bedding area, you better keep calling it a bedding area. But instead of making a, instead of having a good bedding area, make it a great bedding area. Mm-hmm. If you have a decent food plot make it a great food plot yeah um if it's a great transition area or if it's a good transition area make it a great transition area tweak add a little mock scrape out of mineral f- fall a tree just make it that much better find the access to get to that without disturbing the rest of it make mm-hmm. it a great spot absolutely that's that pretty much covers well, well you got one I thing got else one if you coming got, up on if, an hour if you got the property <clears throat> That has a food source. Let's just say it's a great stand of white oaks. And during September and October, man, the deer cannot stay out of there because there's just so many acorns. But again, the the property owner doesn't want you to do anything. How do you hunt it? What's your approach? If you know it's a food source, or let's just say, or let's say you've got you've got crops and it's a cropland. Either one, it's a food source. The property is a food source, and you've got the edge of a field to hunt. And the, the farmer, you know, he's like, I don't want you to go in there and do anything. That's that's my livelihood. That's my income. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to leave standing grain during the late winter. And as a food source during early season, what is the technique? How do you hunt it? What do you do? Go. You're talking to me? Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, no, the other person we're doing a podcast uh, with. So... I, I was kind of a little bit distracted looking at our timing, our questions. But no. um, so if we're talking about hunting, those if he says he doesn't really want you to, for me, I'm automatically I'll go back to the relationship I have with my dad, and 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 are trying to find it, make it work for cattle and and deer, or cattle and wildlife, or or crops and wildlife. If somebody else is in that circumstance. How can we improve the habitat or the income for for the guy, the landowner, 
and help you. So automatically, when we're crop country, I think cover crop. You obviously weren't paying attention. I was not paying attention. <laughs> I'm no, just. Let's say, let's say you've got it's a food source. This small property is a food source, and you can't do anything to it. The farmer is is stuck in his ways. He's got crops. He takes them out during the middle of October. And you have to hunt it during the middle of uh, the early season, or it's a stand of white oaks, and it's a food source. Like that's it. Yeah. How do you hunt it? What do you, what do you what do you do? What are the techniques? And you can't do anything management wise to it. Just strictly the hunting techniques. How do you hunt those those places? <laughs> do you do you want me to answer this for you? Go ahead. You're asking a question. I'm not I'm not sure where you're what you're wanting. How do I hunt it? Well, I'm I'm hunting it when the deer are going to use it. I'm not going to hunt it. So, you say early season. I'm guessing you know you're going to hunt it when season opens up. That's early season to me. So, you're going to hunt it when the deer are using that food source. Let's say it's a cornfield. I'm not going to hunt that until late season when that's a preferred food source. I don't know if this is what you're looking for or not, but I'm just going to tell you how I'm going to hunt it. If I'm <laughs> hunting a property and you're going to sit back and listen to me for a little while now. This is going to um, be profound. So if if you're hunting a property that's that's a crop, you're in crop country and it's a cornfield, I'm not going to waste my time. I'm not going to put my scent. I'm not going to alert the deer. I'm not going to possibly make them nocturnal by hunting that when the deer aren't even really using that food source. I don't want to bump them. I don't want to do any of that. I'm waiting. I'm hunting public ground. I'm going somewhere what, else. What you're doing, I guess what, the point that I'm, I was looking for you to say is you're scouting it. You're scouting and knowing the right time to, to yes. pounce, basically, yes. on that property. And so that that may be you're sitting on the gravel road or you're sitting on the highway, and you're just looking over the bean field going, okay, mm-hmm. there's nothing in this bean field yet. I don't, I don't need to walk in there and disturb it. Now, if it's white oaks, I know that when the white oaks – and it, typically in the Ozarks, they're falling. They're going to be hitting those when they're falling. Right. And so I want to wait until those are falling. Maybe I'm going in. Hopefully you've hunted in a multiple years and you know that at that point is, is, let's just say it's the first two weeks of October. That's when they're hitting those white oaks. I don't hunt it before that. And I don't hunt it in September. I'm going in there the first two weeks of October and that's when I'm hunting and you've it. probably gone in during, let's say late July, early August. And I've and looked you, for acorns. You've already know which trees have good acorns, acorns production yes. acorns, not yes. the small ones with big caps over them. The ones that deer are going to get a meal off of and going to prefer. So you've gone in, you scouted prior and know exactly when those acorns are going to start falling. You've got a tree stand set up. And again, that's not management. That's just a technique that you're using during prior to season and hunting it during the right times during season yes it's all about knowing the food source you have and knowing when that's a preferred food source now matt i've got a question for you i have a field (laughs) and a river how do you how do you manage that (laughs) goal are you managing the river for fish i did not you didn't give me that just your your how do you hunt it i gave you a really good question you didn't know how to i was i was thinking something else i was you're thinking what lunch was yeah no, I don't even know what I was thinking. I was honestly thinking about managing the Prairie Hollow property, and I was thinking about the logger, and, and then you said go, and I was like, "Wait, me. I have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> it was like when the when the teacher asks you, in class. And, and they ask you, and you just go into this big, long ex- explanation, Spiel. and you realize you're just wasting everybody's time, but you're really hoping you can get out of you're it. You're just spinning in circles, just yeah. talking in circles. You're like, I'm the guy who read Cliff Notes last night. I'm going to tell yeah. you, everything I read in Cliff Notes has nothing to do with the actual question that you asked. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sounds like you were yeah. that guy in class. I kind of was. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, I, I mean, that's something for me, hunting small tracks, and this is something we're going to dive into more. Actually, my granddad's property, not far from the family farm, is less than 40 acres, and, and I haven't spent much time on it due to lack of time, um, but that's one place we're going to probably manage in the future and just see what we can we can do and what we can turn yeah. it into. And, uh, so yeah, small tracks. I think a lot of guys do it. Um, a lot of guys are hunting small tracks, managing small tracks. I hope they don't get down because, and they're, it's, it's not, it's not a negative. It's just a property that presents different challenges and every property has its challenges, whether it's 2000 acres, 10,000 acres, it has its challenges. And it's just a matter of identifying what they are, addressing them. Whether you know you need to hunt it differently or or change the habitat and making those changes and then hunting it successfully, it's not it's not a negative to have small acreage. I've hunted them 
many, many years and will continue to do so. And even, at, Adam, like you said, in your instance. I kind of, honestly, I kind of enjoy hunting those small tracks mm-hmm. be, just because you're not wrapping your brain around where do I hunt? Do I hunt here? Like, you really only have a few options. And it's like, okay, this is this is it. This is what I got. I'm going to hunt it right. And, and that's when it becomes key to knowing when to hunt it right. And, exactly. And knowing how to get there. And, and I hope hopefully we covered all that in this week's podcast. And um, hopefully we got everybody off on the right foot and are ready to tackle small small track management, hunting small properties, all the things that occur for habitat and conservation is when it comes to small properties. So yeah. I just appreciate everybody for hanging along with us this week in the Land and Legacy podcast, and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management podcast. If you want to see more, check us out at landlegacy.tv or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Take pride in knowing that God has called us in Genesis 2-4 to work and take care of the land. So keeping that in mind, remember to do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God. Mm